0: The Furious Flower Poetry Center is dedicated to ensuring the visibility and celebration of African-American poets. Here's Maya Angelou speaking in 2012 as Furious Flower celebrated Toni Morrison.
1: I am a, a great respecter and love of Toni Morrison. All those years ago, I read Sula, and I was so moved and strengthened by that book that in the midst of my misery i wrote a letter to tony morrison we hadn't even met at the time but i wrote a letter to her to say thank you for seeing me as an african-american woman seeing me and loving me
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, celebrating Furious Flower. Many of the most notable poets in the country will gather in Washington, D.C., September 27th and 28th. a two-day gala celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Furious Flower Poetry Center. Joining me in our studios are Joanne Gabin and Lauren Elaine. Joanne is the founder and executive director of Furious Flower and a professor of English at James Madison University. Lauren's the assistant director of Furious Flower and also a JMU professor of English. We'll hear the voices and discuss the great African-American writers who've been featured by Furious Flower over the years, including among others, Tony Morrison, Maya Angelou, Sonia Sanchez, and Rita Dove. Joanne, you conceived of Furious Flower 25 years ago. What was your vision then, and what do you think it has become?
2: Furious Flower started as a tribute to Gwendolyn Brooks. It was a conference that we did in 1994 And because it was such a phenomenal event, it has now become a decade-defining conference for Furious Flower.
0: Lauren, there will be a 25-year gala anniversary of Furious Flower in Washington, D.C. in a couple of weeks. Tell me who you expect to be in attendance
3: there and who that gala will honor. So the theme of the gala is seeding the future, because we're both honoring a rich 25-year legacy of Furious Flower, but we're also looking to think through what the next 25 years look like. So we have the three former African-American Poets Laureate of the United States, Rita Dove, Natasha Trathaway, and Tracy K. Smith. We also have Terrence Hayes, an amazing poet, emceeing the event. Um, we have Elizabeth Alexander, who will be doing the opening. And um, we're thrilled to also, in this vein of seeing the Future, have the Youth Poet Laureate, Amanda Gorman, also a young Black woman, joining the event as well. And so this is also an event that celebrates the future in that way.
0: Over the years, Joanne, you invited with good reason to attend these Furious Flower conferences and interview many of the poets. I'm going to play some highlights from those shows and ask you and Lauren to reflect on each poet and writer. Here's the first clip. This is Toni Morrison, and this was part of Sheer Good Fortune, an event that you and Nikki Giovanni created to bring poets from all over the country to honor Toni Morrison. One of the most moving moments in that interview was when Toni talked about what she hoped her legacy would
4: be. But I have to tell you something. I my legacy to me, I I was in London once on stage being interviewed and some women had come from all over black women to see me and they were sitting up in the balcony and I was going on and on with the interviewer and she said the interviewer said how would you like to be remembered and I said I would like to be remembered as trustworthy as generous as loving so this girl up in the balcony raised her hand, she said what are you talking about you <laughs> are Toni Morrison you want to be remembered as trustworthy as?" she was furious and I was looking up at her and I was thinking she asked me well, how did I want to be remembered I was thinking about my family she was thinking about the world I don't care what the world thinks. I want the people who know me to say that they could count on me and that I was a person whose friendship was some, some value. That's good. That's really good. And I don't even care if they read my books. You know, in that sense, I like it, but you know, it's not important. But it's, I don't think of myself as a legend or there is no legacy. And whatever there is, it'll change in thirty years anyway. My Angelou,
2: Nikki Giovanni, and I did a tribute to Toni Morrison in 2012, and in that tribute called "Sheer Good Fortune," more than forty authors, singers, poets came to honor her at Virginia Tech, and we were able to give her her flowers while she could smell them. In fact, she said at the end of that program, if I never have anything like this again in the public, for me, this is enough. What's amazing
3: about that clip is you get the person shining true, but I never got to meet Toni Morrison. And so I know her through her work. And to me, what I can say is that her integrity is in her writing. Her generosity is in her writing. Her belief and love of her people, as she saw them and identified them, is in her writing. And that is what made her writing excellent. And that is what drew so many people, those who didn't get to shake her hand or give her flowers um, in person. That's what drew us to her. That's what made us love her And I think that is what will continue to keep her legacy alive.
0: Another poet honored by Furious Flower, as you mentioned, Joanne, was Sonia Sanchez. What should we know about Sonia Sanchez and her contributions to the civil rights movement and the black arts movement?
2: You should know that Sonia Sanchez was one of the first people in the country to teach courses in black literature at San Francisco State. She also was a founding member of what we now call the Black Arts Movement. But it's interesting that when she was a student at Hunter College, she didn't know very much about black literature. It wasn't taught. But after, she had a wonderful encounter with a woman by the name of Jean Hudson. And she talks about how she got into knowing about black literature.
0: You're recalling this wonderful story by her that starts terribly. She'd applied for a job, had been accepted, and showed up on the first day. This was in New York City at a a writing job. And when the boss took one look at her, he said, I'm sorry, the job has been filled already. Sonia talks about the bus ride home from that encounter and what
5: happened next that changed her life. Lo and behold, I saw this sign that said Schomburg Library. And there was a man outside smoking a cigarette. And I said, What is the Schomburg? He said, Lady, 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 if you want to know what the Schomburg is, just sign this and talk to the lady inside. And my dear sister, I walked into this Schomburg with this long, long, long table, but nothing but scholars sitting there black, white scholars sitting there with their heads down and just stacks of books. And at the end was a glass enclosed office. And I knocked on the glass door, and the woman came, she was Miss Jean Hudson, who was the curator, and I said, what is the Schomburg? And she said, oh, my dear, she said, this library has books only by and about black people. And I said with my smart, mouth, self, I said, there must not be many books in here. (laughs) She never let me forget that. And it took her 30 minutes. I'm looking at my watch and what is this woman doing? She brought me three books. On the bottom, Up From Slavery, in the middle, Souls of Black Folk. On the top, their eyes were watching God. I started to read, and as I read, I was crying. And then I got maybe about a third, almost a half, and then I eased out and knocked on the door again. And I, I was crying. I said, no, but how could I have a degree? and call myself an educated young woman, and I haven't read these books. She said, oh, my dear, she said, I am going to give you hundreds and hundreds of books to read. You know, I I asked her years later, I asked her, what did you see in my eyes that would make you wrap my hands and help me at that time in my life? She said, I saw your thirst for knowledge. And I knew that you would
2: help our people. That's an incredible story. It's incredible to me because you see the beginning of this creative mind who really understands, you know, what it means to be initiated into her blackness. So she goes from there to write books like Homecoming, and Homegirls and Hand Grenades, and later on, books like... uh, Does Your House Have Lions? Yes, and Wounded in the House of a Friend, and Blues for a Blue-Black Magical Woman, because she has, at that point now, taken all of this from her culture, from the literary legacy that Miss Hudson introduces her to, and she goes on to create her own literary collection.
0: Did you read Sonia Sanchez when you were coming up?
3: I did not. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, but I have three degrees from the United States universities. And I I think what's uh, still tragic is that that experience is not uncommon. It's still happening. You can learn so much about American literature and have this entire rich, empowering piece of it left out. And I think that's one of the critical gaps that Fear's Flower fills.
2: And that was the reason I thought about having the conference in the first place in 1994, because my students at James Madison University were not really exposed to these black writers, especially the black poets. So I believe that we could have a conference, bring these wonderful American poets to James Madison University, and they would get their first look at black poetry in essence.
0: One of the early people you brought in was the great Lucille Clifton before she passed away in 2010. Lucille was Poet Laureate of Maryland, twice nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, She wasn't a person of many words, and that was reflected in her poetry. And here's this
6: wonderful poem she
0: introduces herself.
6: I started thinking about Aunt Jemima and all those people and speaking in their voices. And this is Aunt Jemima. White folks say I remind them of home. I who have been homeless all my life, except for their kitchen cabinets. I who have made the best of everything, pancakes, batter for chicken, my life. The shelf on which I sit between the flour and cornmeal is thick with dreams. Oh, how I long for my own syrup, rich as blood, my true nephews, my nieces, my kitchen, my family, my home.
2: You see her taking off of the stereotype of Aunt Jemima, the stereotype that was commercially successful in uh, the American market with Aunt Jemima's syrup. But she's putting the guts behind that stereotype and making you see the woman who stands in the kitchen, who cooks for the white people, who does not have the opportunity to cook for her own family because she's there with them. So she uses language in such a sophisticated way that you see all these levels. Absolutely. I think um, that was probably
3: one of the things that Miss Lucille's poems best did was to both have fun, poke fun, and be irreverent towards power, or what uh, is assumed to be power, right? And I think that, um, yeah, that was something that she did really well.
0: One of the women who will be at the gala in DC on September 27th, 28th is Natasha Chathaway, appointed United States Poet Laureate in 2012, again in 2013 for a second time. This is her poem about a cross burning she
7: remembers as a child. It's called Incident. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the windows, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green, then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came, nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year.
2: This poem is so interesting to me because it looks backward, but it also looks forward because we are experiencing in this country a spate of terrorism that is gripping our nation. And she talks about the Klan, but we have already experienced in our own country, in Charlottesville, in other places, the the rise of white supremacy. So here it's a poem that unfortunately still has meaning today is shocking. I have a poem in my
3: collection that came out this April that is also about a cross burning that happened when I lived in Dubuque, Iowa in 2016. And so there's still so much work to do.
0: You're also honoring another U.S. Poet Laureate on September 27, 28. This is Rita Dove. Let's hear a poem from Rita herself, a poem she calls Family Reunion.
8: Thirty seconds into the barbecue, my Cleveland cousins have everyone speaking Southern. Broadened vowels and dropped consonants, whoops and calls. It's more osmosis than magic, a sliding thrall back to the time when working the tire factories meant entire neighborhoods coming up from Georgia or Tennessee, accents helplessly intact while their children, inflections flattened to match the field they thought they were playing on, knew without asking when it was safe to roll out a draw. Just as it's understood, potluck means resurrecting the food we've abandoned along the way for the sake of sleeker thighs. I look over the yard to the porch with this battalion of aunts, the wavering ranks of uncles at the grill, everywhere else. Hordes of progeny are swirling, and my cousins yakking on as if they were waist-deep in quicksand, but like the books recommend, aren't moving until someone yanks them free. Who are all these children? Who had them and with whom? Through the general coffee tones, the shamed genetics cut a creamy swath. Cherokee's burnt umber transposed onto generous lips a glance flaring gray above the crushed nose we label Anonymous African. It's all here, the beautiful geometry of Mendel's peas and their grim logic. And though we remain clearly divided on the merits of okra, there's still time to demolish the cheese grits and tear into slow cooked ribs so tender we agree they're worth the extra pound or two our men folks swear will always bring them home. Pity the poor soul who lives a life without butter. Those pinched knees and tennis shoulders and hatchety smiles.
2: One of the joys of being involved in Furious Flower for so many years, for 25 years, is that I remember the audience reaction after she read that poem. And it takes me back to the very first Furious Flower conference. Gwendolyn Brooks specifically asked for Rita Dove to be there. And Rita Dove told me that she couldn't be there because of a, uh, an appointment she had as Poet Laureate. But Gwendolyn Brooks would not accept that as an answer. And she said, oh, no, Rita Dove has to be there. And so I called Rita and said, Gwendolyn Brooks says you have to be there. And she was there. And so I remember that Friday when Rita Dove read just before Gwendolyn Brooks came on the stage. And it was just one of those moments of triumph because you saw this woman who was the first Pulitzer Prize winner, who was African-American woman, an African-American, and here, this woman who was now the poet laureate of the United States, honoring each other. And what
0: a great moment to introduce Maya Angelou. (laughs) Um, Let's hear from Maya Angelou, who had joined you and Nikki in that 2012 celebration of Toni Morrison. This is Maya speaking about Furious Flower at that celebration.
1: I'm so honored. I like very much having an attitude of gratitude. I am grateful to be here with my sister friend Tony Morrison. My Lord. <clears throat> my Lord. I mean, she and I are in the same age group, more or less. And, and you know, growing old is not for sissies. Thank the Lord, neither Tony Morrison nor I is a sissy. We are still kicking it. But to see, look around and see Rita Dove, my Lord, and Marie Evans, and Nikki Giovanni, my land. Just to see Sonia Sanchez. What you say? I mean, just to look at these darling girls. And that's what they are to me. There's a world of difference, you know, between being an old female and being a woman. Yeah. It's like being a man. Being a man is no small matter. You can be an old male. But to be a man, you know when you're in the room with a man you're all right. You're not going to be abused. You're not going to be called out of your name. It's amazing. And so when I look around and see these young girls and they will become older women, they will take responsibility. They will be certain to be great citizens in their country. I am a a great respecter and love of Toni Morrison, all those years ago, I read Sula, and I was so moved and entranced, enchanted and strengthened by that book that in the midst of my misery, I wrote a letter to Toni Morrison. We hadn't even met at the time, but I wrote a letter to her to say thank you for seeing me as an African-American woman, seeing me and loving me.
2: Maya Angelou shows you there why so many people love her because she emphasizes the love that she has for her women friends and the love that we have for her. Maya wanted Toni to know that Toni Morrison wrote the book that was her story the bluest eye. She mentioned there Sula. And Sula is about two girls who have this bond, this friendship that is almost eternal. So we we have here this combining of sisterly love with the love for her people.
3: What I hear in that is at the core of Fierce Forest Spirit, which is a sense that what really binds us is love that love manifests itself most powerfully when we support each other, when we acknowledge each other, and when we see each other. Maya Angelou seeing not only her sister friend Toni Morrison, but also these quote-unquote young girls, (laughs) you know, these younger writers. And, you know, we're seeing a passing of the torch, a blessing of the next generation, a seeding of the future. And I think that Um, creating a space where that can thrive is part of really what Joanne has built over the last 25 years. And
0: speaking of that next generation, you have just come out with a collection of your own poetry
3: called Honeyfish. And would you please read from Honeyfish for us? Thank you. Absolutely. I'm going to read the title poem, which is called Honeyfish. The catch is so fresh. Each bite is blue. The sea still in it and settling on your tongue like prayer. This is what it means to eat, you think, to abandon utensils for the grace of fingers, to hold flesh against flesh, hands slick with what will become inseparable from your own thrumming body. As a child, you loved fry dry, the small fish you ate whole and imagined them swimming in you, your belly full as an ocean. Now you know better that nothing consumed lives on as before. When the bone, thin as a wish, lodges itself in the pink flesh of your mouth, refuses offerings of bread or water, becomes an ache that will not be moved, you understand this is what it means to be a body, that what is taken in takes root in ways beyond your choosing, a single bite, and you carry
2: the ocean in your throat. Lauren's poem is a good example of what you'll hear at the 25th anniversary of Furious Flower. We have 25 poets, some of whom are young poets who will be reading at that celebration. We also fortunately have a book coming out called Seeding the Future of African American Poetry. And we have 100 such emerging poets The gala will be at the Grand Hyatt, and the program of celebration will be at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And we're so grateful to the leadership there for allowing us to be in this signature venue.
0: Well, Joanne Gabin and Lauren Elaine, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having us, Sarah.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Joanne Gabin is the founder and executive director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center at James Madison University. Lauren Elaine is the assistant director of Furious Flower. Joanne and Lauren are also English professors at James Madison University. The music on this show featured some of the giants of the jazz world. For a complete list of the music, go to our website, withgoodreasonradio.org. We'll be right back. From Virginia Humanities, welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Yusef Kumanyaka is perhaps best known for his poetry about the Vietnam War. He discovered poetry as a child in Bogalusa, Louisiana, where he was inspired by the southern landscape, the Old Testament cadences he heard in church, and jazz music.
9: I love my big hands. I love it clear down to the soft, quick motor of each breath. The liver's ten kinds of desire. And the kidney's less for sugar.
0: Kumanyaka recently collaborated on a new jazz album called White Dust.
9: Because I was born... To wear out at least. 100 Angels.
0: Yusuf Kupunyaka was the guest of honor at a week long seminar at James Madison University's Furious Flower Poetry Center, hosted by Dr. Joanne Gabin. I spoke with him there about his life and work. Yusuf, let me ask you where you are now in your work. Are you resting or working on something new?
9: I am excited about something new, because recently I've been writing plays, and I admire playwrights who have been influenced by poetry, and I'm working on a book-length poem entitled The Last Bohemian of Avenue A, and that poem is really a monologue spoken by a jazz musician who has been in New York for... A very long time and he has in a certain sense thought a lot about the world and how he has been shaped by his travels by his experiences and imagination.
0: Give me a little for instance a taste of some of this discovery that he didn't realize he had.
9: The summers I lived in Georgia with great-grandma and grandpa. Railroad tracks divided the town, and I'd see men swinging lanterns to signal the big switch engines. Stop and go grew thundering clang, and the coupling of great animals. To this day, sometimes rhythm. Under a tune brings me back to trains running through pines and oaks, churning slowly out of an oblivion of sun on dogwood at the days of a downpour, and I play everything I am. I don't know sometimes where my words come from. Last Saturday, I was on a train, headed for a candlelight gig, and it was crowded. My case touched this guy next to me, and he pushed me. I almost lost my cool, but I said, you can tell me if my horn touching your shoulder and I'll say sir I'm sorry you have eyes and ears you look like a human
0: you began in Louisiana you're born in Louisiana but you've lived in so many different parts of the country yes. how long in New York now
9: I took a position there at NYU in 2006 But I had been visiting New York for some time. I would go into New York for shows, go into New York to be surprised by those around me.
0: Going to New York for shows, that is what has inspired your desire to write plays.
9: Well, actually, um, I've always loved reading plays, especially playwrights that I think have been informed by poetry. Beckett is a good example. Uh, Harold Penter Audrein Kennedy is such a interesting playwright because her plays sort of spark with poetic not ditching as much as poetic tension. So so I'm there I'm there with her. I have a play entitled Foreclosure. It's a play that deals with two officers who have been acquitted for the shooting. Of a young black man.
0: What an incredible area to tackle in these years where video has brought us just right to the moment of these terrible interactions yes. between African Americans and police officers.
9: That's right. And it's not new. That's, that's the tragedy.
0: It's surprisingly new for a lot of white people. Yes. Have you been surprised by the shock on the part of white people to seeing these videos?
9: I have been surprised because it is something that that I've known since I was a teenager, even before that, when I think about it, because in my psyche is this World War II veteran who comes back to Louisiana, and he had been affected by the war, World War II, and he'd also been wounded. I think he had a steel plate in his head, and we called him Mr. Dan, and he was actually beaten to death by a policeman. Of course, the community was surprised by that, and of course, Because of his mental capacity at the war, he came back a damaged soul. We tried to rationalize what had happened. The real problem is class. We don't talk about class. That is still there with us, and it will probably be there with us for a very long time. The idea of class tricks us. We like to become dreamers. We think that class is going to be removed. A good example through education. But I am really disturbed by the fact that so many young people owe so much money for their education. When in fact, there are countries where the citizens receive free education. Because it's an investment in the future.
0: And you should know, because when you returned from Vietnam, you were able to walk through that college door because of the GI Bill. Yes, yes. I've heard one person say the GI Bill revolutionized education in this country.
9: I think so. I didn't even know that I wanted to go to college. However, I've been reading a lot, and there's that impromptu moment where. I find myself writing the application. That was a moment of relief. It was also a moment of freedom.
0: Help me understand why you didn't think college was the next step for you when you graduated from high school in Bogalusa, Louisiana.
9: Well, I had other dreams. I remember my very first dream was to, um, I I drew um, hundreds of greenhouses I was fascinated with plants.
0: Well, you had farmers in the family.
9: Yes, yes, yes. But the whole thing of graph and shrubs and things of that sort and just watching things grow, that there's a certain kind of vitality in that. I would just escape in the woods. And that was the place where I think I discovered poetry.
0: Didn't I read that when you were living in New Orleans, you thought of your first poem about your Vietnam experiences? I read you were on a ladder. You would think of a line, climb down the ladder, scribble it out, go back up to what you were doing.
9: Yes, yes, yes. Um, it was a really surprising moment for me. And in retrospect, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that it was happening in August and there was a lot of dust and debris in the house. And somewhere in my psyche, There was a poem entitled Somewhere Near Fubai," and I started writing that poem. And all the other poems came forth.
0: Were you drafted, and were you afraid to fight?
9: I wasn't drafted. I joined the Army, and I added a year. I wasn't afraid to fight. Let's face it, growing up in the South, been completely uh, shaped by that experience. I had a knowledge of guns, probably too much of a knowledge (laughs) of guns.
0: When you arrived in Vietnam, was it terrifying or could you make your way?
9: It was a dangerous place, but what was interesting was the landscape. I thought I knew that landscape by growing up in Louisiana. The vibrancy, drop a seed, it grows, cut the grass down, and it's up the next week. Now, if I had grown up in a city, I think I would have really felt threatened by Vietnam. Vietnam not the snipers hiding in the grass as much as the landscape itself.
0: We just have time for one more thought. Let me leave it to you to talk to us a little bit about the meaning of poetry and the power of it
2: to you.
9: When Plato bans the poet from his ideal republic, there's a reason. Poets tend to trouble the water, they pose questions and that is the power of poetry.
0: Youssef, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me on With Good Reason. Thank you much. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Youssef Komunyaka was the guest of honor at a week-long seminar at James Madison University's Furious Flower Poetry Center, hosted by Dr. Joanne Gavin. Coming up next, the author of Sargent's Women. The painter, John Singer Sargent, immortalized the high society men and women of the Gilded Age. Think Titanic or Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence. It was a time when there were strict rules about social behaviors, but also a time when obscene wealth meant you might be able to get away with breaking those rules. In Sargent's Women, Four Lives Behind the Canvas, author Donna Lucy tells the stories of four of the fabulously wealthy women whose lives were painted by John Singer Sargent. Lucy is media editor of Encyclopedia of Virginia at Virginia Humanities. I'm so struck by the four women and their portraits that you've focused on in your book. Let's start with Elizabeth, who's on the cover, beautiful and yet sad.
6: Yes, this is Elizabeth Chandler. She was one of the famous so-called Astor orphans. She was orphaned at the age of 11. She was marooned on an island, the Isle of Wight. She was at this very grim boarding school at the time. And she was left there. The guardians who were overseeing the orphans wouldn't permit her to come home. So how did she come to walk into his studio? Her sister commissioned the portrait because they were in London at the wedding of her brother. And when you look at that portrait, you would think it would be a happy portrait because this was a happy time in her life. And at this point, she was a young woman. She was only 27 years old. But at 27, she was more or less considered over the hill in terms of she she wasn't married yet. She was an unmarried woman.
0: My favorite, my personal favorite painting is the one of Elsie. She just looks so contemporary, but stark and unsmiling. Who is Elsie?
6: This was a painting that took him forever to do because he was capturing adolescence. And every time he looked at her, she would be changing.
0: She looks a little like the sort of Jane Eyre character who's been hidden away in the attic.
6: Absolutely, absolutely. That's a perfect analogy, (laughs) really. And where she was was this incredible place. It's this moated medieval manor house called Item Moat, a wonderful place in Kent. It was painted in the old medieval chapel there. Who is Elsie, and how did her family come to have such a fortune? Elsie's father was a Civil War general, And a great railroad magnate. He founded the town of Colorado Springs. And her mother was very sickly. And so she made Elsie her confidant in a kind of cruel way. She would tell her that she was going to die and that she was going to have to take over the care of her two younger sisters, which led her at a very early age to be older than she really was.
0: Later, she's seduced by a painter who was married to her mother's best friend.
6: Yes, yes, Peter Harrison. What a cad he was. And he ends up stringing along. They, they have this very passionate love affair, much of which is takes place through passionate, intense letters. Where he
0: said, yes, I'm married, but just the mere thought of you. I can't live without you. You have to come with me. We have to go someplace together where people won't see us.
6: And they do at one point. They go to New York, and they have this marvelous time. But then, of course, <laughs> he falls in love with her younger sister, Das, And then he betrays Elsie in the cruelest way possible. He asks if Doss can come visit him in, in England. And then when she's there, he writes this letter saying, and now I have her. And then the letters to Elsie stop.
0: After she loses her father and her mother, what does she do? She does eventually marry.
6: Yes. Well, poor Elsie. She goes back after her mother dies. They go back to the house in Colorado Springs called Glen Erie, which is this other fabulous place. And she basically then has to take care of her father because her father has a terrible accident on a horse and he becomes a quadriplegic. And so then she becomes the nursemaid to him and he's this very domineering figure.
0: One of the four women that you focused on, the portrait is not of her but of her sister.
6: Yes, yes. So there were Sally
0: and Lucia Fairchild of Boston. Sally is the beautiful sister and Sargent's very taken with her. And he does perhaps the most extraordinary painting in your book. Let's take a look at it. This is a beautiful woman whose face is
6: entirely enveloped in a light blue veil. You can't see her face. No. And she was astonishingly beautiful, and she knew it. She was quite haughty. She was the beautiful sister, the one, the chosen one. And she was 21 when he he did this portrait of her, and she's on the beach at Nahant in Massachusetts, a very Very trendy resort for the ultra-Brahmin class of Boston.
0: Lucia Fairchild bucks her wealthy family and marries a fellow artist that they disapprove of, but ends up, you write, always struggling financially to support him. He's kind of a loser, it turns out, when it comes to love and marriage. And... They also lived for a time in a wild artist colony in New Hampshire.
6: Yes, yes, the great Cornish colony, which is this fabulous bohemian place where artists of every stripe came and headed by the great sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens. It was a kind of bohemian, wife-swapping Everyone became models for everyone else's husbands, and then they all began to sleep with one another, and there was lots of drinking and, and carousing, and, and all the local farmers would shake their heads and say, things were much calmer in their own households.
0: But the theater performances at night were fabulous.
6: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the theater was, theater was part of the, the bones of that place. They put on these theatrical productions. Ethel Barrymore was there, and it was a kind of Midsummer Night Dream set in New Hampshire. One of the great finds in doing my book was at the Boston Athenaeum, this great old library in Boston. There's a photograph at Nahant, which was the spot where he had painted Sally. And in the background, you can see Sargent is sitting in the foreground. And in the background, you can see Lucia, the ugly duckling sister who's been overlooked and who's not being painted. And she's there taking notes. She was following him around, taking notes about him in a secret diary. Everything he said, she would write down. She adored him, and because of Sargent, she decided to become an artist.
0: All of these lives, Elizabeth, Elsie, Lucia, and Isabella, they're all unfolding against the backdrop of the Gilded Age. Was this a transitional moment for women in particular?
6: Oh, absolutely. They were becoming better educated. They were suddenly being allowed into schools. And these particular women who lived in this upper echelon of society. They had the money to do great things like help start all of the great art institutions in the country. They were just beginning to break out of the the conventions of the society that they lived in. These women wrote 20, 30-page handwritten letters every day with allusions to classical mythology, to the books they were reading, to the great theater performances they were attending, to music. They all loved music. Wagner was a huge rage. And they were transported by this. All of this was critical to their souls. So these particular women were not your standard socialites. There were, as you might imagine, in the Gilded Age, because there was so much money sloshing around, lots of the women were just vapid social climbers and only cared about their ball gowns and how much they cost and and how big their husband's steam yachts were and how how large their quote cottages were in Newport which would be 60 70 room cottages but these women didn't care about those things and that's why I chose them you write that reading
0: their stories was a bit like reading gilded age porn were they really that scandalous
6: well yes they were actually these letters were very steamy In many of these stories, in fact, I think in every one of the stories, there are illicit love affairs, and there's something very sexy about waiting for your lover's letters, and you have to hide them, and you have to go to some corner somewhere to to read them, and you're waiting for the postman to come, and they're written on beautiful stationery with family crests and, and hotels from the places all over the world. They're also
0: heartbreaking insights into timeless truths about love and marriage.
6: Oh, absolutely. Well, especially because diaries are not written for other people to read. Could you tell? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I've spent my career actually reading women's diaries.
0: You know, the women you write about are mostly young. Do you see lessons for young women of today in their stories?
6: Absolutely. Because this is a book about young women. And unfortunately, some of the same problems that these Gilded Age women ran into, women today still have. They're up against a male-dominated society. They have all kinds of restrictions about, or expectations, I should say, from family, from society in general. And we're still fighting these same battles.
0: Lucy is the author of *Sergeant's Women, Four Lives Behind the Canvas. Lucy is media editor for Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Humanities. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine, to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quants, Elliot Majerczyk, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.